Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. My name's Robin Archer. I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Programme here at the London School of Economics. And I want to welcome you to our event tonight, Can Russia Be Remade? Um, tonight's event is co-hosted both by the Miliband Programme and also by the Department of Sociology here at the LSE. And I'm delighted to introduce our speaker, Professor Nina Khrushcheva. Nina Khrushcheva is Professor of International Affairs at the New School in New York City. She first studied at the Moscow State University, which, as you know, is a prestigious institution, and, and later did a doctorate at Princeton um, in the United States. And amongst her books is a book, Imagining Nabokov, Russia Between Art and Politics, which was published by Yale University Press in 2008. She's also published a book on the lost Khrushchev in 2014, and more recently, a book, In Putin's Footsteps, uh, 2019. And I believe that she's in the process of finishing another book, um, which she may talk a little bit about tonight. I mean, she brings to her writing not just the strength of her deep scholarship, but also insights from her own family history, um, growing up as she did, um, as the granddaughter of the former leader of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev. Her opinions are widely sought and her analysis is widely published. You can see her writings in think tanks like the Council of Foreign Relations or the Kreisky Forum in Vienna. You can see them in journals like Foreign Policy or The Atlantic. And you can see them in literally countless newspapers. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you. I, 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 when I got to 100 in the last four years, I, I stopped looking at them. But they were not just, you know, the, I mean, that was the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and so on, but it was also newspapers in India, in Nepal, in the Middle East, in multiple countries in Europe, in Australia, um, it, it, in, in Latin America, in Brazil, in Bolivia, I mean, really all over the place. So I'm very grateful that she's able to share some of her insights with us here at the LSE today. Well, Nina's going to speak for about um, 45 minutes and then we've got a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. I have been asked to mention that if you're one of those people who's interested in Twitter, you can tweet our event at hashtag LSE Miliband. Um, but first, before I ask you to speak, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor Nina Christian. I feel a little oversold, so don't hold it against me. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. It's really a great honor and a pleasure, and I walked around your campus today. It was just absolutely beautiful and inspiring, and there was a giant map. In fact, it inspired me to put my own map here. Not the map, there was a globe right in front, and so here is my own map, uh, since I'm going to be speaking about a very large country. Um, I also want to, um, if the Ukrainians in the audience, and I know that our Russian apology means very little to you, uh, but I do want to say that um, the horrible tragedy that is taking place there 
uh, is um, just absolutely horrible and uh, our dismay may mean nothing but I still think always that it's better stated than not so I'm stating it. Um, okay so let me begin with saying that for two decades um, under Vladimir Putin, President Vladimir Putin, Russia was seemed to be going somewhere in 2000, his first year in office. Some of you may remember his first international trip was to Great Britain. He met with Tony Blair and uh, he found very much common ground and things were supposed to be uh, really going very well from there. Following the very chaotic years of Boris Yeltsin, his post-communism, uh, under Putin the state control started increasing rather slowly but increasing, uh, but it was then, then seen as a necessary price for a strong economy that grew uh, in GDP of um, $196 billion in 1999 to $16 trillion by 2010. Russia was said to have been catching up with Lee Kuan Yew era of um, uh, the Singapore, uh, the era of Lee Kuan Yew and the restrictions of rights uh, that uh, Lee Kuan Yew called guided. Putin then started calling sovereign democracy. We still don't know exactly what it is, but something, something sovereign. Uh, went hand in hand with um, more comfortable life for much larger parts of the population that in fact Russia ever had. I and mean, Russians on, on mass lived better than ever before. Uh, following the adjustment to capitalism, which was very hard that decade of the 1990s. Uh, our culture began to flourish under Putin um, and, you know, may have followed just a few names, Dmitry Krimov, uh, Kirill Serebrenikov, they emerged as a luminaries in the theater, Andrei Zvegintsev, some, some, some of you may have seen his incredible film, one of his incredible films, Leviathan, uh, in film exhibitions at the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, the Pushkin Museum of Art, really were absolutely first class. And in fact, by 2021, four Russian museums were in the top 10 most visited museums globally. So it seems like, you know, Russia was not the backwater uh, that uh, it may have appeared at times. So, and things in fact worked so well that, you know, teach at the new school, I'm in New York, but when New York became one of the epicenters of uh, COVID in 2020, I actually escaped to Moscow uh, and was absolutely shocked to discover that tests and alcohol wipes and, and all the things were immediately available, unlike they were in New York. Uh, the TVs were in every subway car and button on your phone will bring you food while in New York I would have waited for 10 days because I was told that there was no delivery available and whatnot. And so that was quite a shocking experience because when I left the Soviet Union in um, 1991, and it was the Soviet Union, I left a month before, uh, before the, the coup, um, so which was what, 30 plus years ago, I went to Princeton, nothing worked in Russia. Uh, but now comfortable life was widely available and not just in the capital. Uh, so this is Russia. I mean, we're in London, so it's close enough, so you're probably more aware of geography. In America, I always start every presentation with a map, because America is far away, and so you really need to explain people where you, uh, what are you talking about. 
but this is really kind of hard to miss. Let's, let's just put it this way. Um, and you know, during Putin, uh, Putin's time as president, uh, some very economically forgotten areas outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg um, started developing. But you see from this large size, the size it's um, uh, kind of Russia does have a bit of a split personality disorder, uh, part in Europe, part of Asia, and kind of rupture between the two, what is it exactly? Uh, but um, you mentioned my book, In Putin's Footsteps, so it's called In Putin's Footsteps, um, um, something about the Russian soul, um, looking, searching for the soul of an empire uh, across Russia's 11 time zones. And so I went all across the time zones, uh, and, uh, uh, 9,000 kilometers to see what it is, what Russia really is. And it was quite remarkable because what I found traveling from Kaliningrad, which was former Königsberg before World War II, to Kamchatka on the Pacific Ocean, where you can see Japan from uh, the backyard, that their highest standards of living um, everywhere and when, and that's what I mentioned, the COVID and my experience in 91 versus my experience in um, 2021. Parks, museums, public spaces were in good shape. Housing and amenities have improved. So the expectations at the time, in 17 at least, uh, that the comfort could be spreading further, was spreading further into poor towns and villages, taking its place in the Russian psyche, that comfort is fine, that you don't need to be bored with comfort, that in fact your morning coffee can bring you as much, uh, as much um, a pleasure as the uh, remaking the universe in your own image, as they did, you know, in 1917 or some such. Uh, so it was seemed like Russia may have a promising individual future for people, uh, and in fact, Putin himself insisted that Russia and I quote have a good future because of its great human resources. So if you invest in people, all good. Well, that future that I observed, uh, or at least had potential for that future that I observed in 20. 17 and wrote about it in 2019 uh, is now in the past because of course the special military operation um, I mean I'm, I'm sure in this audience on any audience there's been so much discussion how it is a euphemism for war uh, in order to once again a quote uh, liquidate the anti-Russian enclave formed in Ukraine so Putin really did something remarkable that normal life that seemed like Russia was building in the last 30 years, uh, kind of cemented Russia's fate back again as a revolutionary country. Because historically, Russia advances not through um, creation, but rather than through negation. So that it moves forward through not evolution, it's step-by-step -step development, but upheaval and crisis. And that's what we are experiencing today. Uh, so it always just claimed this grandiose, earth-shattering deeds, rather than co concentrating on gradual improvements of life, lives of individual citizens. Um, so the war in Ukraine is fought for establishing, uh, for the purpose of establishing a multipolar world, once again a quote from Putin, and in fact today, if you follow the Valdai discussion, those who follow Russia, today was, uh, he went even further, in fact, uh, he basically um, said it that, um, quote, uh, Russia's job is to build a new world. So here we are, Russia is building a new world again. Whew. Run away as fast as you can. 
so in similar vein, the Soviets insisted on dictatorship of proletariat spreading globally, and you know where that went. Um, so, but once again, I mean, the reason what's happening in Russia today is even more shocking and more remarkable is that the Soviets at least were looking into the future. There was some sort of progress that they envisioned, uh, but for Putin, everything is about the past. I mean, all the claims that are being made, although they use the word future, the claims are all about the past when this denazification, demilitarization of Ukraine, once again, these are quotes, uh, the Kremlin says, uh, is like the Soviet liberation of Europe in 1945, but of course the liberation of Europe in 1945, now it's the invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Uh, so this kind of Russian president's perverse desire to achieve peace through military means, this is, by the way, an actual quote from Putin, we're achieving peace through military means. Um, I love George Orwell, he's my thing. I mean, I love him more than life itself. So when Putin first said that, he's like, wow, how could you be openly just saying war is peace and ignorance and strength? But I guess you can. Um, and note that there were lack of Orwellian methods before the war, for sure. In 2020, uh, when all public expressions were banned, uh, all public expressions of political disagreement were banned in the streets because of COVID, of course, very conveniently, there was still uh, an in-person countrywide referendum which allowed Putin to stay in power for two more six-year terms once his current term expired in 2024. That is, if he's alive, he's gonna stay in power until 2036, he can. Some people talk about elections next year, but I think we shouldn't be just wasting our breath even using this word uh, in this particular case. Uh, but even that, the 2020 referendum seemed like it was giant freedom still. Because after the war began, uh, February, 20, February 24, 2022, any attempt to criticize uh, the Kremlin or suggest that Russian armies, anything that, then, uh, other than benevolent, has been met with repressions that even I, as I said, am a Soviet. Um, I grew up in the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s. I've never experienced that, ever, never, nothing like that. Uh, so today we once again saw the benevolent actions of the Russian army that 50 people, at least for now we know, died uh, in an attack uh, in the Kharkiv region. Uh, so after the war, in a space of two weeks, uh, independent outlets, media outlets, the radio Echo Moskvy, the Dosh TV, Rain TV, Novaya Gazeta, Medusa, others were just immediately closed. And so just last month, um, there was a meeting at the Novaya Gazeta, which Remarkably, still, you know, Nova Gazeta is the uh, the, uh, the editor in chief, Dmitry Muratov is a Nobel Prize winner, uh, and it's really quite amazing. So Dmitry Muratov now is foreign agent. Nova Gazeta is closed. It doesn't matter that he's a Nobel Prize winner, and yet there was a Russian-born uh, man, Soviet-born man, uh, that from now from the USA got a chemistry prize, and Russia is celebrating that. Oh, he was born in the Soviet Union. Okay. You have your own people who are just there in Moscow, they're Nobel Prize winners. But let's celebrate somebody there. So you kick them out, but then you celebrate. Kind of, you know, split personality disorder all the time. So there was a meeting at the Nova Gazeta, uh, its anniversary, in fact, meeting. And um, uh, so they gave some shocking numbers. So in the last 18 months since the war began, 10,600 media outlets were shut. 
10,600 media outlets were shut. Um, 6,000 citizens have been accused of discrediting the armed forces. 87 criminal cases are open against the journalists. And by September 2023, 685 people and organizations have been branded foreign agents, like Murata. Uh, those who are allegedly falling under the influence of unfriendly Western countries. So Serebrinik of Krim, of other artists, together with many journalists and scientists, those who are the best and the brightest, they had left. They left the country because they were unable to defend their work, uh, which the state now considers threatening, or the state considers their name threatening. For example, there is a wonderful writer, very important writer, Boris Akunin, whose plays are put on stage all over Russia. So the plays were not banned, but his name is banned. So there is a play without an author. I mean, even the Soviet Union didn't really go that far. The Soviet, if they banned something, they would just do it. But you have a play that doesn't have an author, or Krimov, who is a director. You have his, um, uh, uh, his production, but it doesn't have a director. So this is kind of your function in this complete discombobulation at, at all times. Uh, and uh, so in my assessment, probably, uh, at least um, uh, at least two million people moved away in uh, in two years. This is just a few pictures of uh, this is September last year when a special military operation was announced. And on one part of the screen, Putin was saying, "Oh, everybody supports that. It's all you know, great thing." And here is another part of the screen. Not that they showed it. Uh, another part of the screen. So there's a million and million people. Leaving, um, uh, leaving the country. And those who remain, uh, they exist in what I call a paradox of tyranny. When people end up supporting or pretending to support, and that's how all this very heavily advertised numbers that you hear, uh, perhaps it's 70% of the Russian people support the, the, support the, the war, the military operation. Well, if somebody calls you and says, do you support the operation, what are you going to say? because you know that there would be consequences. So pretend to support the operation. Um, and the paradox of tyranny, when people pretend to support the worst, the worst despots because of fear that it's going to get, the fear that it's going to get, uh, going to get worse. Uh, they try to protest. See, this is uh, St. Petersburg protest um, last year. Um, they try to protest, but after a while discouraged discombobulated, I use this word again, frozen in despair, they just quietly hope to survive the oppression. If they move, they think a straight jacket will get tighter. Um, one of the stories, I was in Mon I, I am in Moscow, sort of observing all this. So after the mobilization, those of you who know Moscow, especially recent Moscow, it's about, I don't know how many, 250, 300 um, subway stations are there. And so each subway station has a turnstile. And after the mobilization for about a month or two months, there was a police standing not at each subway station, but at each turnstile. So in order for you to enter the subway, you have to move that person. He's not threatening, or she, but they have guns, and they're standing there, and you have to move them. So that's intimidation on the level that, as I said, as a Soviet, I never experienced. So it's hard to protest in this kind of environment. Um, and people don't because they think that they, they don't know the straitjacket 
uh, is not going to get tighter. But of course, it is getting tighter. Uh, so it becomes quite deceiving that if you don't move, um, they're going to spare you. They won't. But at the same time, you can't move. Uh, another thing that I've noticed in being there is that sort of this oppressive, this horrible oppressive state, we invite some sort of Russian genetic code. And when I say it, people get very upset, but I still say it. I think it's important to understand because they not only surrender to that fear, but also there is anger, there is hatred. I never experienced uh, public squealing, I mean, personal squealing on your neighbor. I mean, I know it from my grandparents because somebody, uh, somebody, uh, their colleagues would be, uh, would be reporting on each other, but now it came back again. So all these things, the animosity, chauvinism, um, and uh, a lot of it, I mean, of course, in the centers, but also a lot of it in the provinces, because these are the people mostly, if you hear Putin, if you, if you understand Russian, you hear that his rhetoric and his language is getting downgraded and downgraded. So suddenly it's the language of somebody who just got out of prison. It's the language of somebody who, uh, who speaks uh, the typical man's language, that is just horrible, uh, horrible coarse, uh, coarse kind of um, rhetoric that he uses. So he uses it to kind of, you know, those city people don't support me, but you will. Um, and of course, these people that he speaks to maybe never heard of Krimov. They never, some of them never traveled, or many of them never traveled abroad. Um, and I was recently went to a region of Omsk, where um, you know one of the political prisoners of today was British citizen and Russian citizen as well. Vladimir Karamurza is, is being now being detained. Um, and so I was talking to some people there, and you see what's happening. Uh, they sign up for the war, they sign up for the army, their families receive tens and you know, hundreds of thousands, um, uh, so not hundreds, um, uh, tens and actually hundreds of thousands of rubles, which would be you know, 1,500, 2,000 dollars, 20,000 or more, uh, depending, you know, some, some people come and back in coffins and so they would get a payoff from, from, uh, from the government. And a lot of thousands of soldiers die, but also more, many more actually come back and do receive this money. So some buy houses, but some just, you know, drink this money once and go, oh, that's life. I mean, we now, now got finally this real thing. We, we see the money that we've never seen when Russia, as I suggested, should be kind of spending it uh, or pushing its soft power. For example, also in Omsk, I learned that the beauty industry, you know, you're eyebrows and your collagen lips and Botox and whatever whatever there is there um, is now moved into smaller villages which would before would be hard to imagine but this the widows or the soldiers wives uh, fix all of this so they become very beautiful lip fillers uh, they feel some just want to feel good some want to feel some normalcy some want to you know the one widow said to me well I need to look beautiful for my next husband uh, and in some ways it sounds like incredible cynicism, but it's not. It's just trying to find normalcy in whatever it is, kind of the upheaval that is being, that is being created to pretend that their life means something. Um, with onslaught of national propaganda on TV, where the war is kind of economic driver now, for many the feeling is that we don't want the war. Very few people want the war. But if the, less, the Western world is against Russia, and main message, my, uh, main message among the politicians and pundits, 
so at least we are protecting the great nation from those who want it to be less great. Uh, and that is shocking because it was sort of the traditional Russian or Putin's choice. So conditions are improved, as I said, not through soft power, not through uh, kind of the, the power of butter, but through the power of guns, uh, through military-industrial complex and state ideology. Um, even if the majority of, uh, of um, deep Russia, and I hate this, but what I mean deep Russia is far from, you know, being far from the centers of big cities, these are Kremlin constituents, as I said, and Putin sp speaks to, to, to them. Uh, these people are not fully enthusiastic about the war, not at all. And once again, based on a variety of, of, uh, of polls and my conversations, sort of I assess that 50 people, 50% of people just hope to live through this stuff somehow. Uh, and that's why in the West there's all these reports, oh, restaurants are filled and there's no shame. Of course there is. The only thing that people talk about is how to get back to Europe, of how to survive this, or what horrible things we're doing to Ukrainians. Uh, although now it's less so because um, uh, the waiters are listening to you, and so you kind of wait for the waiter to go away, and then you start talking. But if you listen carefully, a lot of conversations about this. So 50% just trying to survive. Some people within this 50% trying to take advantage of it. 20%, 15%, 20% are fully for the special military operation. When Evgeny Pigozhin thing, the mutiny on Moscow, like, oh, people are supporting Pigozhin. No, they just came for the circus. When suddenly the tank is in my town, I'm going to take a picture with that. Uh, because nobody was running to sign up for that particular, uh, for that particular event. So the 20, probably at the most, 20%, and 30% are strongly against it. So I think that's probably more realistic breakdown. Yet, prevent any potential danger or doubt and to create even more separation between the city liberals and the traditional villages, um, anything or anybody who is thinking rationally, uh, all of this needs to be undermined. Uh, so for example, and this is another thing that I've never experienced in the Soviet Union, but now it's just, you can't believe that things are happening. Like for example, naked body, naked body is an art uh, in, in art museum and not forbidden, essentially. I mean, it depends on the director of the museum, but generally you just stay away from the naked bodies because God forbid it undermines the traditional values, whatever that means. Cross-dressing, oh my God, that could be LGBT. Uh, critical portraying of any army, doesn't matter, just any army, you can do this. And here is a man who was detained um, publicly reading Tolstoy's War and Peace, so he was arrested for that very thing because combination of war and peace, no, that's a no-no. Uh, and so there's some like recent things. Uh, for example, I love French literature. My first education was in literature. Edmond Rostand, Cyrano de Bergerac, great play. Uh, in 1897, French play. It's important, it's a French play. It was forbidden uh, last spring in one of the oldest Russian theaters in St. Petersburg, in Mariinsky Theater. Why? Because it allegedly discredits the Russian armed forces. You know, Rostan in 80, 1897, never heard of those, never experienced anything like that, and yet here it is, there is no play. Uh, just recently, two very popular films from Yakutia, the Saha Republic within the Russian Federation, this is one of them, is Aita 2022, uh, uh, was, uh, was banned. 
And it was banned because, quote, shown destructive information that contradicted the unity of the peoples of Russia. Unity of the peoples of Russia. Because you've never heard before that Russia, Russian nation was always dominant within the Soviet Union. Unity. And in fact, in the film, the amazing thing, if anybody has seen it, the Russian person actually is a good person at the end. But still, it was forbidden because somebody may misconstrue that Russians were not seen as those benevolent forces all over the former Soviet Union, or even elsewhere. Um, another film was The Candidate, which is absolutely hilarious, very much recommended, and there's some cross-dressing in it, so men dressed like women. And once again, I keep bringing up my experience as a Soviet. Uh, in the Soviet Union, things were not that absurd. There were plenty of absurdity, but not like that. Cross-dressing, funny comedy of errors were allowed. So. That is kind of reality that we, or Russia exists in. Uh, in a quest towards Putin's dystopian uh, universe, history has become a main target. I'm not going to go into this because I'm sure you've been hearing or reading or even discussing here all this great, uh, his great treatise about Ukraine and how historically it's the same and we're the same and you know, everything is the same. Uh, uh, but uh, the um, more recent example is the new textbook uh, for 10th and 11th grade history textbook. And they're rewritten in the most positive imperial manner. So empires are bad unless there's a Russian empire. Russians, awesome. Just awesome. And Stalin is also, by the way, quite awesome. Uh, and uh, in this, um, I didn't put it here, I should have done. So there's a geographical map attached to the textbook. Uh, it's a geographical map, it's not a political map. Geographical map brands America as Anglo-Saxon. It actually says Anglo-Saxon America. In case you wonder what it might be, it's Anglo-Saxon. Um, science too became a victim. Um, this is a picture of Andrei Rublev's Holy Trinity. I mean, it's a lot of soul in it and whatnot. Uh, painted in 1425, uh, and it has been recognized as a great work of art, more art than actually religious, uh, religious icon. It's a really great work of art. It was kept in the Tretikov Gallery, not just the naked bodies you cannot have there, but also uh, religious art. So it was at the Tretikov Gallery, and scientists insisted that it should not be moved, that it needs special climate, uh, that it needs special conditions. So Putin decided to donate it to the church. And here it is standing um, in uh, Christ the Savior Cathedral in Moscow. I don't know, perhaps he's thinking that it just will take care of the war in Ukraine because that's you know, blessed and whatnot. So, but you could see that that spiritual masterpiece stands and surrounded by the guards. So that in itself uh, is an amazing kind of picture of national schizophrenia. Uh, Putin generally has been giving icons um, to the military, and then this particular icon uh, then was dragged around all over the military operations, sort of the war territories, uh, as if it was to bring a miracle, kind of really, truly medieval mentality, because even the Soviets, they never denied the science, but you know, the Putinist state uh, does. Uh, many do understand what's going on, I and mean, it's hard not to. Um, for example, the new, the new movie, Barbie, there's Barbie mentioned that the mayor of Moscow invites you to, you're going to drink pink champagne and please wear pink. 
So you get this announcement, but at the same time you learn that the Ministry of Culture in fact forbade Barbie in Russia. So you're going to celebrate it with the Moscow mayor, but you are going to do it in secret because the Ministry of Culture forbade it. Um, so it's hard not to understand this absurdity. Um, but the, and the, so the feeling is that we really live, and I said Georgia was my, Orwell is my everything. We live in George Orwell uh, 2022. Uh, and it's not just reading it. That fiction had really had become absurdly alive in Russia. 1984, uh, last year, was the second most sold book uh, in, in the bookstores online. And you ask me why second, and I can tell you because the first book was some self-help book. How do you survive all the crap that is happening around you? Uh, so people want to know how to survive and what to expect, despite the barrage of official uh, TV propaganda. Uh, so this is my little Orwell experience. I always look for my Orwell everywhere. So this is a St. Petersburg. It's the old, there's a renovated Zynga factory with a um, uh, really remarkable bookstore that is made there. It's very impressive, but you could see if you read Russian, the books are all about Russia and how great it is. Like the, whatever, the army of St. Petersburg or something all the great things about St. Petersburg. And so I walk into the store, and I look around, and fine, I got an idea, and suddenly I just see that mug of George Orwell, and it says, let the big brother think there was tea in this mug. Right in the middle of all this very patriotic, nationalistic propaganda of how great Russia is. And the reason this is a different Orwell from, from the thing, because I was so, I just couldn't believe it, and I bought it immediately without taking a picture first, so I just had to do a collage. Um, and I thought, no, that must be a fluke, because no. On the other hand, we know how Russians protest. They can't go in the streets, but they have to sort of this secret protest, the, under, under, um, the kind of undercurrent protest. And so I came the next day thinking there must not be another oral mug, and there was another oral mug. Not the same, because there was only one, there was another oral mug. So somebody who did the display, I don't know, I mean, I, I, I'm in Moscow, not St. Petersburg, uh, I don't know whether it continues, but for that uh, that winter, last winter, it was still uh, it was still the case. So this is, of course, not enough for dissent, but it's also not nothing. Uh, Russia, the Kremlin, Russia, really seems to have lost all rationale. Uh, so it's now anti-fact, false sense, and alternate um, and alternate reality. Uh, then, sorry, I'm going to keep it on all. Uh, then I just wanted to say a few words about the IT industry because it requires freedom and creativity. Do I still have time? Am I on time? Uh, creativity to thrive uh, was hit as well. Uh, before the invasion, the Russian programming talent was getting competitive in the economy of services. In 2019, uh, uh, it was the third in the world in this digital uh, development. Uh, and, of course, the skills are needed for the sovereign future that Putin keeps promising, keeps saying that we're going to have, Russia is going to have. But, of course, as you know, uh, most of these people, uh, these talented people, sort of the, uh, became anti-war nomads and relocated to Armenia, to Georgia, to Kazakhstan, to other countries. And, uh, of course, Russia GDP, because of their... Uh, uh, because of the exit, the exile contracted up to 2% last year, but Armenian GDP rose 11% because these people really just created this new, uh, uh, the new formula there. Uh, of course, Russia didn't invent technological advances. Russia is really not good at 
uh, inventing something for, from scratch. I mean, there's no Mark Zuckerbergs there because you need freedom in order to do this. But Russian incredible talent in a thousand year history is that it's an incredibly talented, seasoned imitator. St. Petersburg is a great example. You take Paris, you take Venice, you take Amsterdam, you just put it together, boom, St. Petersburg. Uh, in, you know, in France, literature, you take Voltaire, you take Rousseau, you take Germany's Goethe, boom, you just have a great Russian literature, Pushkin, Gogol, Dostoevsky, because all of these formulas are being remade in the Russian, uh, in the Russian way. Even before the modern era, there was the Scandinavian Vikings, uh, who gave the first birth to Rus people in the 18th century, all the Putin now says it's all, you know, it's all Western propaganda. Uh, because, you know, Russians grew out of the moth somewhere in, in that land. Um, so Russia does suffer from that particular schizophrenia, so a mutation of Western formulas of progress and then following by negation of this adopted influences. And of course, uh, uh, reflected in its national symbol, which is the double eagle. And I realize I should have ended my presentation, I mean, my PowerPoint with the double eagle, but I'm sure you've seen it numerous times. It's that thing uh, that looks east-west but doesn't look forward ever. Um, so the history of pendulum swings feeds the country's revolutionary nature or the upheaval, nature of upheaval. Uh, it prefers rupture uh, that came before rather than improvement of it. So my point is that things were going relatively well and Putin said, nah, I think it's boring. Let's do something dramatic. Um, in fact, Putin himself in 2021 argued for the evolutionary, Russia's evolutionary development. And yet he chose to claim his legacy through exporting violence and tanks instead of bringing others to his side through soft power. So there's no Le Kuan Yew, uh, Le Kuan Yew uh, fame awaits him. So I'd like to conclude with saying that in the last 20 years, the centuries-old Russian dream of becoming a normal country, some of you who may have studied the Cold War and you know the Khrushchev era, I remember that uh, that uh, slogan that he had that will catch up with America uh, in 1960, and so by 1980 was supposed to be catching up, but the Soviet Union collapsed, nobody caught up. Actually, Putin got that close. I mean, Put Russia under Putin got that close to be catching up. It sells grain, and you know, we know the drama of selling grain. Anyway, it has been closer than ever before. And now Putin swung that pendulum all back, all the way back. Uh, really demolishing uh, many efforts that Russia made towards normalcy since the end of the Soviet Union in 1991. And uh, something that I said, and it's important to repeat, uh, he sunk Russia even further to the kind of absolute denial of sense and rationale, but also the Western nature of Russian culture, culture and society as a whole, because ultimately it is part of the Western culture. Politically, it's quite uh, Genghis Khan, but in culture and society, it, is, it, is a, it, it follows, it has always followed the Western formula. Uh, at least before the um, kind of the patterns of upheaval and crisis happened for the sake of the future, it was misguided, like, you know, you catch up with America, communism and whatnot. However, it was, it never negated science. Um, it kind of tried to improve and develop. And by the way, if you look at uh, Nobel Peace Prizes, they were, most of them, they were actually gotten at that era. Uh, in the 50s, 60s. Now it is pure dissension into the past, uh, kind of something that we can call the devolutionary development. So this is where I end. And since uh, 
the announcement said that we'll discuss Russia's potential for change and remake. Uh, we can do it in the question answers. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, so we've got a, a good chunk of time here for questions. Um, there's also an online audience, so I'm going to try and um, take questions from the online audience as well. But let me just start taking single questions. If I call you, could you just say who you are and where you're from, because we do have this outside audience, and um, wait for the microphone. Perhaps is that woman with her hand up there? Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Sophia and I'm from Lithuania, but I'm studying here in LSE. And uh, uh, before I ask my question, I just wanted to let you know that um, uh, uh, my uh, great-grandfather was one of the political prisoners freed from Gulag uh, by, your, by Khrushchev. And he remains a very well-respected uh, the, the most respected uh, Soviet leader in my family. Thank you. And um, so my question is, how likely do you think is uh, Russian disintegration that uh, Western uh, political scientists keep talking about? How, I'm sorry, I missed the what, how what? How likely is Russian disintegration? Disintegration. Um, I wouldn't, I mean, actually, thank you for this question, because this is, um, if we say about the remaking of Russia. The only way I believe, I think it's a crime now in Russia to say it, uh, the only way I believe Russia can change is if it is, I don't know about the disintegration, if it becomes a, a, an actual federation. Because that size and that map is important, because that size can't move, it can't change, it's impossible, because it's the imperial size, and the imperial size does not become a non-empire. The British Empire, I mean, other empires have, I guess it's privilege, to be maritime empires. When you have a landlocked empire, what are you going to do? You always would be looking for influence that is around you. So it's quite difficult to change with the size of that body. But I also think, I mean, and please forgive me uh, for saying that, um, because probably there's some political, there are political scientists in this audience, I think there's kind of a case of wishful thinking in a lot of Russian analysis, just because everybody imagines an enemy and everybody thinks, and you know, Hollywood presents us with great roadmaps of how to deal with a bad guy, and unfortunately we become victims of that. We kind of deal with a bad guy exactly the way the Hollywood says we should. Uh, and uh, uh, so there was a lot of conversation about that. I absolutely don't see the disintegration. Who is going to disintegrate into what? How these places become independent countries or independent entities? I mentioned Sahara Republic, the uh, Yakutia. There's been a conversation about them becoming uh, an independent country for 30 years. And they've been saying, well, we're larger than Australia. Why Australia can be a separate country and we are not. And I was there in 2017, and I had a lot of conversations about that. And they were saying, well, you know, we'd like to do that, but ultimately, what are we going to do? How, how are we going to function as a country? How are we going to get through other parts of the Russian land? I mean, who is going to be trading with us and whatnot? So I don't see it happening, uh, but it doesn't mean that it may not, because in Russian, in Russia, uh, everything is possible, especially when it's a bad thing. 
Like you can always wait for something horrible to happen. Um, so hope it, the disintegration, not disintegration, uh, federalization would be great, but if it's done in a proper, strategic, well thought through formula, which so far I haven't seen, and so far, I'm sorry, I'm trying to be positive and negative at the same time, which is hard. Um, at the same time, I've never seen Russia as a strategic thinker. You know, even Putin himself, he was good tactician to a certain point, and then when he started thinking strategically in his mind, that if we're going to remake the world, things didn't work out the way they were supposed to. Uh, so I wouldn't really hold my breath waiting for the disintegration, but who knows? Thank you. Um, so, yep, yeah, I'll just take this gentleman with, uh, in the front row, and then we'll around the room. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. James Knight, living in London, originally from Edinburgh. I just wondered, has Russia ever been a true democracy, however you define that word, and can it be a democracy in the future? Well, that's a question that everybody wants to answer to, including myself. Uh, well. Everybody was saying Boris Yeltsin was a Democrat. He was not communist, but he was sort of a czar of Russian democracy because his formulas were very czarist. He ruled by decree. The great thing about him that he allowed freedom of the media, but he was not a Democrat. Russia really, unlike, I mean, people say that, and I have to say that, uh, not that I think that it should be compared at all, but even one difference between Ukraine and Russia, Ukraine actually has free elections. Russia never had free elections. Whatever they tell you, it never did. Because uh, Yeltsin became president since the Soviet Union collapsed. In 96, there was all this, oh my God, we have to have Yeltsin because either communism is going to take over. Boo-hoo. And we, in fact, Yeltsin at the time had 3% approval. And the American firm called Ketchum made him into president. So they turned him into this wonderful figure. Then 99 comes. Yeltsin resigns, he says, oh, here is my successor. The Putin is my, the Putin case, or Putin is my successor, oh, great. So then there's these elections where the successor is chosen because Yeltsin said he's a successor. Then 2004 comes, and as David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, one time brilliantly, memorably said, uh, he could have won it by a landslide, but he stole the elections just because he couldn't help himself. So even in 2004, where they could have been great elections, they just stole them anyway. And so then you go from there. Then Medvedev comes in, you know, the little thing, who now speaks from the telegram. His just brain leaks out in all these incredible pronouncements. I always say that Russia is so patriarchal, even our first lady is a man. <laughs> because, you know, Putin is without a wife, but Medvedev and Putin remember those wonderful pictures when they were drinking tea together. Uh, so it's, it's what is a sovereign, and Putin now 
talks about democracy and how the world is going to be democratic, like, right, because you're just going to you know, shoot everybody who is not. So it is still a question to, and I think there's one, I mean, if I have a better answer, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for you because I don't know, and that giant body imagines itself something, but it's not really what's, what's happening to it. Russia had a fork on the road, which was a very serious and very important moment in 2011, if Putin did not, he could not have, but if he didn't announce his return to politics, to presidency in 2012, that Russia could have started developing into sovereign or non-sovereign, whatever kind of democracy. It did not happen. It went back to its own character. You know, when um, I just wrote a book about Khrushchev, biography of Khrushchev, not that we need another one, but I was asked to do it and I did it. And there was a moment I remember when I found out, so Khrushchev was going to retire in 1965. So he was ousted in 64, he was going to retire in 65. And I was thinking, oh my God, if it was just only one year, it would have been all different. And I spoke to a historian, um, Nikita Petrov, a great historian in, in Russia, and he said, please, of course he wouldn't retire. You can't retire in Russia. So whether you want it or not, you just can't retire. And I don't think Putin can't, couldn't, but he didn't, because it's just that 11 time zone system that keeps you within the framework of its existence. Great, thanks. Um, so look, there's a lot of questions here. Um, maybe this gentleman- Maybe we can collect a few, right? Would it be better? We could, but okay. we've got a bit of time, so okay. let's, okay. I might come to okay. that. I think that would be a good thing to do, but let's just start with this gentleman here in the maroon top. Uh, thank you, Professor Khrushcheva. Uh, my name is Sajini David, uh, former State Director of Urban Planning in the Republic of South Sudan. Uh, my question to you is, um, so Russia has resorted to extensive use of private military companies with tens of thousands of now seasoned fighters indoctrinated with a profound sense of supremacism and opportunism all over the world. How do you think this will impact Russia's political development in the future? Uh, specifically in regards to democratic development. Thank you. Well, you know, as Mikhail Gorbachev used to say, in your question there is an answer. You basically answered your own question. I mean, what, what kind of democratic development you have when you have military thugs running around all over the world. Uh, and in fact, just to, to, I don't have an answer to this. I really, as, as I was trying to kind of say in my, in my, in my presentation, in my talk, is that like really, Russia lost all sense of all sense of normalcy, all sense of uh, propriety, all sense of what's the future is because what kind of future we envision. Uh, and today, in fact, the latest news is that I forgot somebody from the somebody who deals with crime said, "Oh, EP, wonderful! Russia has, I think, twice as um, uh, Russia." criminals, imprisoned criminals is uh, now, I think, two times less than they were in how many years? Like, right, because you just released most of these criminals, or many of these criminals, to fight in the Prigozhin army, to fight in the military operation. But that, I mean, it's such an obvious, you don't even need to be an expert to understand this. And yet they said, oh, yippee, we just did this. How great. So it means that the crime is no longer the crime because there's less criminals. But however, those criminals are the ones who are speaking up. So for the word is much more criminalized than, um, than I don't know, raping a woman. Uh, and so this is all 
um, and this is all being normalized in a sense, and that's when I spoke about Putin's language that changed. I mean, he could say, he could use random expressions such we are going to uh, kill our, uh, our enemies in the outhouse, uh, but they were more kind of a specific, um, a specific effect for that specific moment, but now he just speaks like that. And his whole entourage speaks like that. There was a very sophisticated man, he used to be a very sophisticated man, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Sergei Lavrov. And suddenly Sergei Lavrov speaks like Putin, which is almost looks ridiculous because Sergei Lavrov was a, one of the best diplomats the United Nations had in, uh, uh, in the early 2000s. I remember him, he was considered the greatest diplomat. So all these things, uh, become normalized. Crime becomes not a crime, it becomes a patriotic endeavor. Uh, and uh, Russians are, Russians, not Russians, but this kind of forces are taking over the world, arguing that they are bringing benevolent, uh, benevolent changes in, in the countries that, uh, um, I mean, you saw the Africa summit in, 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 in Russia, I mean, that was a weird, to say the least, uh, was weird experience. Uh, so it is a, I mean, I hate to say gangster state because this is just jargon words. I mean, they mean nothing. But it, it makes criminalization, uh, as long as it serves patriotic efforts, as long as it uh, answers the needs of the state, suddenly it becomes a good thing. I mean, there's like good and bad become absolutely reversed. I mean, it's something when I talk about the art, like suddenly the naked body, which is, you know, um, uh, the Venus is no longer sometimes something permitted because God forbid uh, values of the family is being insulted or some, some such. Uh, I don't have a better answer but you know really this, the way I see it today I absolutely don't see how that medieval mentality can provide, pro can provide anything that can bring future and what kind. In fact, with Prigozhin, I was walking around the June 24th when there was a mutiny. I was walking around, went to the Kremlin to see what's happening. There was some weddings. Nobody would take it seriously. There's some construction going on. It's like, well, there's a mutiny. It's like, no mutiny, whatever. Like, we were told to do construction, so we're just going to do construction. And um, uh, so I was uh, talking to people, and I was talking to a family with a son. And she said, oh, I'm sure Putin will do something about it. And like, oh, what is he going to do about it? And isn't Prigozhin is a, you know, he's a hero, he's a patriot. And she said, no, because with Putin, no matter how militaristic that state is, my son is still going to go to school. With Prigozhin, he's going to be a child soldier. So that's kind of an understanding of, of uh, many people all around Russia, that in some ways Putin, in what it can be, is still the lesser evil. Thanks. So I'm going to take some people over here. Um, I think this uh, gentleman in blue. It is very difficult to bounce back and, and nothing, and in fact, it's kind of a remarkable thing because I love Putin. I mean, I love Putin just because I, I work on, on authoritarian power. So when they say something that is just completely ridiculous and absurd, I love it because they prove my points of, on everything. So Putin says, we need to make sure that people are returning to the country. Oh, we just gave Dmitry Muratov a foreign agent status. Like, yeah, because people are just jumping back. I mean, clearly that's what they want. 
and and so this tensions and that's why I find it absolutely amazing that even I keep saying that even the Soviets didn't do it. Of course the Soviets did it and Khrushchev would say one thing one day and do it to a totally different thing another day. But it wasn't it was less obvious because the society never went through this kind of 30 years when you you have a normal life or normalish normalish life. So I don't know how they're going to bounce back. And one of the bouncing back thing is that one of those talking heads, like the one who said that now crime is twice, or criminals are twice as less as they used to be, says, oh, demographic is improving. Okay, uh, which way? Oh, we are going to forbid the, um, it's almost like Texas, uh, which, by the way, even Russia wasn't before, uh, and oh, we're going to forbid the, um, uh, the abortion pills, or we're going to forbid abortion, right, because that's going to help, because that's going to actually eliminate more lives than, than you're going to, to bring back. So you're asking me all this big, these are not philosophical, but practical questions, how, do you, how you bring the country back from the brink of idiocy. And I really do not have an answer to this because I don't think it has gotten to, I mean, it's already on the brink, but it can stay on that brink and even cross further because it really hasn't gotten, has, hasn't gone that far. For example, this is not an answer to the democratic, but, but sort of, I mean, it's, so today there is a uh, media outlet in Yekaterinburg, uh, the city of Yeltsin used to be Svetlovsk. Um, they were fined a tremendous amount of money because before there was a law in March that you cannot uh, doubt that whatever the armed forces are doing, they actually published a few pieces on the protests, of how Russians protest and how they hold the signs, war and, war and peace and there's no war and whatnot. So they did it before there was a law. But now they're fined for that. So how is that possible? And the, when the question was asked of a person who, um, whoever the talking head was, this person said, well, they really didn't pay attention to censorship. And, uh, there was no official, there is no official censorship. And certainly there was no official censorship two weeks after the operation began. So people really didn't have time to adjust to the fact that now it's a martial law, it's just not called the martial law. So the same thing with democracy, I don't know. I mean, how do you get back into thinking rationally and normally and actually honestly explain the problem? Because nobody honestly explains anything. Putin says that demog demographics is great, and if you say that it's not great, that's prison time. Right, so now we've got lots of questions. Um, I'll take one more single one from this woman with the glasses. Just wait for the microphone, and then I think I might start taking clusters of questions. Uh, so my name's Hayley, and I'm from Australia and China. Um, you mentioned in, at the beginning of your talk that Russia undergoes change not as a result of evolution, but rather dramatic events. Do you think that's a problem more of leadership or just the circumstances of Russia as a country. More problem what? Of leadership or just the inherent problems that exist? Okay, thank you. Um, well, for once I'm going to answer very quickly. Um, every nation has the government it deserves. That's it. Right, well that is a succinct answer. Um, <laughs> Not mine, by the way, it's a quote. It, it, 
it's, it's admirably succinct. So let me take um, two, two or three people now. Um, so this gentleman with the light blue shirt, and then we'll come over here. Um, hi, uh, my name is Evgeny. I'm from Yekaterinburg, Russia. I'm a, a LSE alumni. So my question, you mentioned in a few slides that you've traveled back to Russia. You have a very profound voice and a lot of impact. Uh, um, do you ever feel unsafe uh, when you do that? So just, just hold it if you, if you've got a pad there if you need. Okay, good. Um, and, and over here, this, this gentleman with the glasses in the front row. Hello, Professor. Uh, my name is Nirav. I'm originally from India. I wanted to ask you, do you think that the West has made mistakes ever since the fall of uh, communism? Do you think that things could have been done differently, both in a geopolitical way and in terms of encouraging Russia to be more democratic? Thanks. Thank you. Well, they're quite big questions, so wonderful. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so uh, on the feeling safe, I actually try not to dwell on it and try not to answer this question just so I would, wouldn't jinx it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I go there. I, I think it's important to be there. You know, I lived in in the States for almost 35 years. But when I, how to say it so I wouldn't sound so lofty and horribly grand, and I really don't mean it in any way. So when something like that happened, you have to, you have to go because everybody else is gone and they don't, they're not in the position that I have. So I'm kind of half American and uh, kind of, have a slightly distant approach to everything, probably. Um, so I can. I go there as long as I can. And when I can't, I won't. But for now, I do. Although, once again, the genetic memory, the genetic code that I was referring to, uh, on my floor, now there's a construction going on in some other apartment. But it was not just the usual construction when everything is horribly loud. It's some movement going on. And I didn't grow up like this, but suddenly when there was a movement next to my room, I was like, oh my God, they're now coming for me, which I never thought I would think, but I thought. And so that's your genetic memory that you don't even have, but it comes back to you. One time um, there was a knock on my door. It was last, it was last October, October 30th, knock on my door. I was like, okay, fine. I'm, that's my time now. They're coming. Uh, and I said, who is there? And I felt very brave, like I'm ready. Uh, who is there? And, and Vladimir Karamurza, the, the, the man who is in prison, is like, oh, he's my hero, so I'm just going to be very brave. Uh, there's no answer. I'm like, who is there? Hi, my name is Sasha. I came to trick or treat. <laughs> and I just fell on the floor. I kind of slid, slid on the door. Oh, no, no, no. I kind of slid on the floor because I was so ready. And here it was, Sasha. She came to trick or treat. And that was also why. For her, it was also a way of to protest because they said before it's satanic. You don't do any of these Western holidays. And suddenly the Sasha came into my building to trick or treat. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't have an answer. But as, as far as I can, I can. So the West has made, of course, the West has made mistakes. Uh, the Cold War ended with a Russian defeat. People get angry at me when I say, but it was. I mean, you know, Russia was... Soviet Union collapse, so of course it was uh, a defeat, and Yeltsin declared himself a Democrat, and so of course it was kind of say, victory, soft victory. And then of course it started telling Russia that we won the Cold War. I mean, I was in Princeton at the time, uh, right after 
it collapsed and you know almost everybody was saying we won the cold war we won the cold war we won the cold war how do you feel about it it was a great awesome oh and you know remember the khrushchev kitchen debates i don't know if you people know about it khrushchev and nixon in 1959 in moscow were debating which grandchildren are going to be in capitalism or in communism and whatnot we won the cold war you're here so nixon won who he be um, and when you have imperial mentality in 11 time zones and you are the center of the universe of all these other places around you, suddenly you're told that you're nothing. It doesn't feel good. And so then you need to have a government who leads you, I mean, Germany after 45, who leads you into a certain kind of thinking. And under Yeltsin, because he was not a Democrat, he was a Tsar of democracy, it was... Uh, it wasn't that pronounced, there was a lot of problems. So Putin comes in and says, I'm gonna remind you're a great nation. It's like, oh yay, you're a great nation. Um, so yes, I think the West did a lot of mistakes. There was a lot of kind of who are you and, and actually even uh, Tony Blair in his memoirs wrote about this, that Vladimir at the beginning felt that he was one of us and then NATO expanded and he wasn't listened to and after 2001 he was offering George Bush all sorts of, uh, all sorts of um, opportunities and then he was dismissed as a non-democrat uh, and whatnot. Uh, and this is not to excuse Putin in any way, uh, but uh, if you have a KGB mindset, you do take it as a very, very big insult. When uh, um, Felix Dzerzhinsky, do you know who he was? Felix Dzerzhinsky, the, um, uh, the first NKVD, the KGB, whatever, the, the secret police person, uh, so the statue next to Lubyanka, the, next to the KGB headquarters, and he was taken down when the when the thing happened. And a lot of and a lot of um, uh, KGB people, and even I talked to some of them. They said there was such a absolute dramatic moment when this person goes down, and and you know he was a hero of of, of everything. So yes, the way the West has made mistakes because, let's face it. Um, at least my experience, and I'm saying it, I'm only um, just basically stating it, but Russians do take, take a different treatment. You know, it's even my Serbian friend said, well, after the, uh, in, nine, in the 90s when, when the Serbs would, were, um, when Milosevic was being hunted down, uh, the world didn't hate all the Serbs, but now the world hates all the Russians. So Russians are treated differently because if you're an empire, you have to be responsible for your empire. If you have imperial mentality, even if you don't, you still have to be responsible for that. But um, uh, in some ways, one should understand that even, and I still think that Putin was baited to, to behave the way he's behaving. Uh, so when uh, a lot of articles say that the, his invasion was not was unprovoked, it was provoked, it wasn't justified. It is a very different thing. So the fact that he was provoked doesn't mean that he should be fighting it. Who, people provoke each other all the time. It doesn't mean that you take, uh, take a boxing uh, glove and start beating, beating others. So yes, but unfortunately Russia made its own bed and now is sleeping in it. So Russia has absolutely no excuse, no matter how the West behaved. Okay, um, we're going to try and get through a few questions here. So can I start with the woman in the chair? You with the darker hair. If you just keep your hand up so that you can be 
And if we try and keep the questions succinct... I will try. I will, I will now try no, to you don't. my answers. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Sarah, I'm Italian, and, uh, but I've been living in London for a few years now. Um, my question is about the war and trying a bit to understand why he chose to go to war. Because apart from the fact that it's awful, it's also not rationally useful for Russia. What was his thinking? If he wanted to, be, to build back an empire, he could have just influence the, I don't know, the part of the population in Eastern Europe who are nostalgic of the, of the Soviet Union, but why a war? Okay, so first question about it doesn't seem rational, what's the explanation? And the woman here with the glasses. Um, hello, my name is Ruslana, I'm from Ukraine, and my question might sound a bit as cliche, but um, uh, whose responsibility um, is um, war in Ukraine and uh, whether people in Russia could do something more than sitting quietly, leaving country because of mobilization or killing civilians in my country. Because um, the reason why I'm asking that, we had few revolutions in my country and we changed Yanukovych regime in 2014 and the number of people who came to this revolution uh, was much bigger than the number of people ca um, which came to revolution in Moscow, St. Petersburg, or other cities, despite the fact that um, uh, the amount of people in Russia is more than three times uh, higher than we have in Ukraine. Okay, Thank I'm you. just going to take a third one, if that's all, all right. Um, so, um, this man here with the glasses again. Yeah. Uh, my name is Rafael Jansutanov. I come from Kazakhstan. Thank you so much for your insightful and very, and, uh, very nuanced uh, uh, presentation. I wanted to ask you about uh, actually the imperial instincts of uh, countries. Right now we are uh, led to believe that Russia is some kind of the outside, the outlier, so that the Russian behavior is is not the norm, but kind of the the exception. But if you look at what and how the other empires are reacting to similar events, you see a pattern. So your grandfather was at the epicenter of the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's when the Soviet and Cuba wanted to enhance uh, military co like cooperation and the United States was willing to go to a nuclear war and protested against that like vehemently and it was willing to sacrifice the, not just the one country but the population of the world and also if you look at the, the United Kingdom we see the example of Ireland so Ireland was a colony of the UK for 800 years so part of Ireland was populated. Okay. <coughs> yeah. Let's not have a lecture okay. on Ireland, but that's another example. Yeah, yeah. Um. Okay. But, but I just want to say that there are similar patterns of how great empires react, and like Russia is not the exception, but is yeah. the norm. And I'm saying that without justification of the war. Thank okay, you. So there's the rationale, there's the question of the comparison with uh, Ukraine opposition, and there's this last point. Okay, uh, well, these are all giant, all questions. Um, they chose, I mean, I'm sure in this audience and in this institution of yours, you've been discussing the rationale to death because it has been 
18 months and we've been discussing and we're discussing. Um, so I'll try to be, I mean, it's hard to be brief here. For example, I, until half an hour before it happened, I argued he cannot do it precisely because I study dictators and I study Putin and he is irrational or at least used to be irrational gambler. So he would always bite as much as he could chew and that seemed that there was an absolutely impossible chewing exercise because how are you going to swallow the whole country that, that just you can't swallow. So that was quite an embarrassing moment for me. Uh, for which I had to apologize and then explain in detail as to why I thought that. But I still actually stand by the analysis, that information that I had at the time, because I didn't, um, I still assessed him as a political figure, authoritarian but political figure. And I know here in the States for sure, there's very little difference between dictatorship, authoritarianism, autocracy. But for us, there's a giant difference between all of this. And so I didn't really think that he was full-blown dictator, which he was by then. Then there was COVID, so there was post-COVID rage syndrome, I know, and I'm really not trying to be light about it, but he was. There was very few people coming to advise him or discuss anything with him. Uh, and those who did were the ones who were like, oh, Russia is great, oh, we're being undermined, oh, we just need to do this and that and 25 other same things. Also because other advisors, which is interesting because people responsible for Ukraine were not people who were look, working on foreign affairs because he has this thing about uh, all the spheres of influence and of course Ukraine is in the middle of it. Uh, so these were the ones, um, uh, the um, uh, FSB, the ones who were responsible for control within the Russian Federation, which of course not the Ukrainian. But nobody really, even in his entourage, nobody thought he would do it. And that's why this whole thing in the beginning was so remarkably discombobulated, because even the Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, didn't know how far he goes, what kind of, what amount of troops he's gonna have. Is it gonna be this way? Is it gonna be that way? So, and that actually was shocking, that this big country, and the country that was able to fix many problems under Putin, sort of the, kind of the, capitalist problems uh, in many ways suddenly just went off the rails. And the only explanation I have is that absolute power corrupts absolutely. I know it's a cliche, but here you go. Because after 23 years, that was 22 years, I think your brain is just going, it's not the same brain. The geopolitical map of that mind is not the geopolitical. So we should, I should have analyzed him as a dictator and if I, looked at it from that perspective, I would have said immediately that that's what he's going to do. Because that's how they do it. Because they create upheaval that they, um, uh, they think that they can be no wrong. And in fact, my grandmother, uh, I was named after her, Nina, uh, she always said to me later in life, she said that Khrushchev of 1958 is not Khrushchev of 1962. Meaning that in four years, his brain already went off the rails. It went into something by the way, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, so it went into something that uh, is already beyond, um, I mean, it wasn't that bad, but still beyond conversation because they really think, and after 22 years, imagine, you have this 11 times those, when I went from, to on my trip, by the time I reached uh, Kamchatka, 
uh, I was thinking, if I were Putin, and it was my country, I think I'm God. And he thinks he's God. Uh, so this is, I mean, and you can have many directions to answer this question, but so this is one of those, but I think he just went into dictatorial off the rails, I own the universe, and who are these Ukrainians to, uh, uh, to, um, to do something against it. That was another thing, sort of to your question as well. I don't actually, I probably wouldn't answer your question well enough, I never could. But I remember when I was watching the bombed cities uh, and then Ukraine, and I remember right before it began, uh, there was a di di directive that Ukrainians can take guns, so Ukra every Ukrainian can get a gun. And I, also on TV I was saying that like, if every Ukrainian will take a gun, the Russians would not have a prayer. And the, and the person who interviewed me on CNN said, well, but you know, it's 140 million people versus, it's like, no, you just, if you know a little bit of history, not the imagined history that Putin has, if you know a little bit of history, you know how Ukrainians fought in World War II. I mean, it was a destroyed, destroyed nation, and yet they fought like hell. They fought Belarusians too. I mean, they fought like there is no tomorrow. And so you know there's something like that happens. They're going to fight like hell, which they did. Uh, so if you know a little bit, you would know. I wasn't surprised. And then everybody, every analyst was saying, well, aren't you surprised? Said, no, that's the thing. I'm completely not surprised. I knew that they would, they would do what they, um, uh, they would do what they do. Uh, but he has his own mind. And, and, and of course, it was uh, another thing, I mean, once again, kind of slightly related to Khrushchev, uh, is that um, uh, he helped bring Ukraine to kind of existence and rebuild it a little bit after World War II. And so suddenly the Russian power coming from the Kremlin uh, again is actually destroying the country again. So that in itself, just if you look at it from that perspective, it once again is improbable combination of things. So you build that and then you destroy it because you, you don't think it's, it's, it's something that you... Um, uh, it, it's not obedient enough. Uh, so, I mean, and that, another thing is like, how can you bomb a nation to loving you? How can you bomb a nation? I remember in, in um, a little bit to your question as well, uh, I remember after September 11th and when the United States went to Iraq, it was kind of a remarkable argument is that, oh, we're just going to bomb them into, uh, into freedom, right, because that works great, because you can bomb a nation to freedom and it's going to love you, uh, love you uh, anyway. But that's coming back to my point about dictatorships. They all think the same. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. There's a formula that somehow, I mean, democracy has many forms. It can be sovereign, whatever that means. Uh, democracy has many forms, but authoritarianism really, I mean, authoritarianism does too, a little bit. But dictatorship really doesn't. It just has only one form and it always acts as if they're just doing it. Like, oh, check, check, I'm gonna kill those, they're disagreeing, they're gonna to go to prison, we're gonna chop off their heads and something, something. Um, uh, so, and to the empire question, uh, look, I'm not an expert on empire uh, in any way, and yes, empires behave once again similarly. And some rights, and that's actually would be Putin's argument is like, well, the United States can go into Iraq, what about us? Um, yes, and that's very fair. Uh, that's fair, very fair cr criticism. Um, 
you're destroying a nation that you say is brotherly, you're destroying a nation that you say is your neighbor, you're destroying a nation that you say can benefit from being under you. I mean, like, show me anybody who thinks they're benefiting from being under Russia. I mean, like, you know, there was a question from Lithuania. Yeah, that's the thing, that's the spirit. Uh, they really love us uh, to pieces. Um, so, yes, I mean, we can have a lot of philosophical discussions that all, all empires uh, all empires act similarly, and they do. And I think the difference with Russia, to my very small way of trying to understand this, is that because of its size, because of its history, it does things in an absolutely exaggerated way. So maybe they do behave this way, but when Russia starts shooting at something, it's just really going all the way. For example, you have Alexei Navalny as an example. So he's already in prison. Do you really need to torture him? What it is that you're trying to prove? Like you have zero humanity left? Yes, that's really a very good, very good example of this. And so that's how, I mean, in Abu Ghraib was a horrible thing. Of course, Dick Cheney should have answered for this. He didn't. Somebody smaller, but at least there was some, I mean, I say at least, it's not at least, but there was some conversation about it. There is zero conversation about it in Russia. It's like, yay, you know, the Lord Voldemort runs everything, and you know, whoever is under him, it's just nothing. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, I fear that we're at the end of our time. Um, look, it's been a, it's been a wonderful presentation. I think what you, well, you can do that now. <laughs> I wanted to say that I think you did an amazing job of showing us some change through time, not just comparing the present with the Soviet past, but also with the very recent past and the prosperity that was on offer there. And the picture you painted was in some ways a sort of integrated and highly textured picture, not just about the politics of contemporary Russia, but also about the cultural life and the way in which it's changed. So thank you again to thank Professor you. Nina Kostrani. It's really a, ple a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.